Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing, man? Great. We had a snowstorm here, and I made my own snow cone out of real snow, and it was a lot of fun, and now I have to drive in it. Can't confirm. Derek made his own snow cone. It is a new year, so, uh, well, technically it's not a new year yet. We are recording this episode about two weeks before the new year because we're going to be taking Christmas off, but today we are officially starting the Doctrine and Covenants year for the Come Follow Me, and we're way excited to get into that. Uh, before we do, though, just want to talk about one thing that happened this week that is especially interesting, which is the update to the Church Handbook of Instructions. Derek, did you see this? I did see this. Basically, the biggest changes revolved around racism, conspiracy theories, vaping, marijuana, stuff like that. You can probably see them. I don't. I haven't checked the app. I don't know if they're updated in the app yet, where uh, the church handbook is presently. But there are. There have been news stories released on it. The changes are actually available on the LDS.org or sorry, ChurchOfJesusChrist.org website, so you can see the changes in their entirety there. But uh, one thing I just wanted to point out was the church's handbook change that addressed racism, apparently. It says that the church calls on all people to abandon attitudes and actions of prejudice toward any group or individual. Goes on to say, members of the church should lead out in promoting respect for all God's children. Members follow the Savior's commandment to love others, strive to be persons of goodwill toward all, rejecting prejudice of any kind. This includes, look who they name here, prejudice based on race, ethnicity, nationality, tribe, gender, age, disability, socioeconomic status, religious belief or non-belief, and sexual orientation. Now, on the one hand, I am glad this is in the handbook. This feels like kind of a bit of an effort to do what you said, Derek, to enumerate these commandments. Like they are putting something in words that, you know, should be should go without saying, but nonetheless, it's powerful to be more specific. So I'm glad they're doing that much, even though it is a little bit of a bummer that don't be racist has to be put in the church handbook. But the other thing I need to consider and to, you know, put out there because I've said it before, is I do need the church to be more specific in the future because people need to know exactly what this means. They need to know exactly what these attitudes and actions of prejudice are so they can mind those things, which brings me to the end of this statement where they included sexual orientation in here as one of the groups we shouldn't be prejudiced against. And the irony is, uh, is a little bit hard to miss. The church doesn't seem to know the definition of prejudice, and that just seems like a major oversight to include the LGBTQ community, or at the very least, uh, gay people in there as our policies dispossess them. Do you have any immediate thoughts or responses to these handbook changes, Derek? Yes. I want to point out that gender is in here, too, and we have discrimination against women in our, in our entire structure. Right, mm -hmm. and that needs to be named. And this gets to this un this irony that you pointed out, and here's what I think is going on behind that. We don't see the workings inside the box. It's like the church is this big contraption with a whole bunch of gears inside which we don't get to see, and the output is a mystery, but inside, I imagine that a lot of this discontinuity is based on who's on which committee and who gets first authority over which parts, and so, some of the brethren are more in line with trying to be woke, I guess, and some are more in line with keeping the status quo. And just depending on who gets 
their fingerprints on which piece, there's this internal battle that ends up playing out with this inconsistency in our in our handbook, right? And I think that's the key piece that we need to realize is we need to repent of our history as a church. We need to repent of our current discrimination, especially against women, LGBTs, and whatever officially is is in the handbook of, that's discriminatory. But I really like about what I like about this statement is not, of course, that it fixes everything, but it allows us to now hold people accountable, saying, "Look, you're my bishop. You've got to stop whatever this is that's racist, you know, or if." Or you need to, if someone says something racist in the ward, you as the bishop, you need to step in and do something. Because it's now in the handbook. And they are bound by the handbook. And another thing that it does is allows me to explain to anyone who would criticize me, like, Derek, why are you doing this? I said, I'm leading out. And I'm leading out in whatever anti-racist or anti-sexist or anti-homophobic or anti-trans phobia, right? I'm saying, look. I don't have to wait for something to come out of Salt Lake. I'm leading out. Yeah, man. Thank you for sharing. So, yeah, that is the handbook. I think that's all the real news that we want to talk about. So let's go ahead and move into the Come Follow Me. Before we do that, just wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. We are in Doctrine and Covenants section one. Before we really get into this, is there any context or any kind of elements you want to uh, focus on before we dive into the actual content of these verses? Yeah, I'm so excited about three themes that I'm proposing we look at for the whole year. And not everything in every lesson will cover some of these themes, but they're the themes that I'll be bringing to the text. And not a lot of other resources might be bringing these particular themes. So here they are. The first one we've done many times, it's the task of confronting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. And there's a number of social justice and economic justice texts in DNC. So we will uh, see so many ways where Voices of warning will be afflicting the comfortable, but then reassurance will be comforting the afflicted. And that's throughout the DNC. The second thing is what I'm going to call a future-focused framework. Do you love my alliteration? (laughs) Yeah, man. It's good. I love alliteration. Good. So it's something that I've thought a lot reflecting on the difficulties in church history. I really think that our identity as a church in every moment of its journey is more defined by its future than by its past. We as a church are always about where we're going, not where we've been. Even though we talk about our history a lot, I want to talk about where we're going. And we see this in the DNC. There are so many things about our church history that are better framed now by the realization that we're not limited to what happened in the past. We're unlimited in our future potential. I don't know if that made sense. Yeah, it makes sense. But it reminds me about... I had a harpsichord teacher. I knew we were going to go to this story. <laughs> who, who about the Baroque, right? Well, it is about um, the, the page turning. So I, she wanted me to be a page turner for her at a, at a recital. And I asked her, like, how far before the end of a page, how many measures before the end of a page do you want me to turn the page? Because different people want to, you know, how, depending on how far they read ahead. And she told me the weirdest thing. She says, go ahead and turn the page after 
I've finished the page because I know where I'm going better than I know where I've been. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's really true for our church. We know where we're going better than we know where we've been. And then here's my third point is, the people prompt the prophets. Isn't that a, another lovely alliteration? Yes, it's a great alliteration. The people Good prompt job. the prophets. Almost every revelation in the DNC is prompted by something concrete outside the revelator. Sometimes it's a definite concern brought to the prophet by the community. Other times it's a question about the interpretation of the Bible, especially during Joseph's Bible translation product, project. But not many revelations, I can't really think of any right now, are occasioned by God's initiative or by God just randomly. Maybe DNC, no, I can't. I think DNC 76 might have been even prompted by something in the scripture. I'm not sure right now. We've got these revelations that are born out of the experience of the community, and the community brings these things to the Lord. That's, that's the whole point of a prophet. We advertise that our church is so cool because we have living prophets. But what are living prophets for if they're not responding to life and if we're not allowed to bring our concerns and have them ask the Lord for what to do. That's the whole point. Mm-hmm. Okay, so those are my three themes that I want to look at awesome. off and on throughout the year. So now we got themes. Can we talk about uh, some context for this first section of Doctrine and Covenants, a.k.a. the preface to the Book of Commandments? Yeah, this is so exciting. So this is a revelation that was received on November 1st, 1831. And the church, remember, is really, really small. It's not very organized institutionally, or at least the way it is now. Just a small group of people really trying to journey together. Like we have, pro- we have apostles mentioned in here, but we don't have the quorum of the twelve apostles as a group until 1835. So this is really early in the journey. And so what happened is, there is a discussion in a conference about whether or how they wanted to print the revelations that Joseph had received so far. He had already received a number of these, starting in 1829, 1830. And they wanted to think about this. So there's a group of people who are tasked with writing a preface to this book. And then, so I'm, I'm drawing upon this book called Revelations in Context, which is a really great resource that gives you the historical context that occasioned each of these revelations. It's available for free on Kindle. It is. And on the, on the, it's also on the church's website as well. Oh, neat. I did not yeah. know that. And so here's what happened is, um, our, so this, this early church leader named William McClellan notes that hours were spent trying to figure out how they're going to do this revelation printing thing. And then a bunch of people were trying to draft a preface to the Book of Commandments, and then the conference didn't like it. They didn't like it. They picked it all to pieces, McClellan says, and then requested Joseph to inquire of the Lord about it. And then Joseph. There's people prompting the prophets again. Yes. And then Joseph, dictated by the Spirit, first prayed and then received this revelation and dictated by the Spirit this preface. And that is how the preface to the Book of Commandments and later the Doctrine and Covenants was given. It's a response to a concern that people brought to the prophet. Hmm. And now we have uh, some themes of this preface that uh, we may or may not want to get into. I know that uh, a lot of what we want to go over is very similar, but I've noticed in like these first, I guess, 8 to 16 verses, there are some warnings about uh, the last days, some warnings about apostasy, some warnings about following the voice of the Lord. 
there are testimonies and witnesses given of the restoration and there are uh, commandments given at the end to follow the prophets, search the prophecies and uh, do more in that in those lines. I did notice some other things that were worth talking about in the course of these verses and I think they start as early as uh, verse 1 with this first commandment which is also a warning to hearken unto the prophets. I don't know how best to go through these. Uh, perhaps we should just go through these cr chronologically at first and then just see where the conversation takes us. But uh, yeah, man, do you have anything to start with uh, the first verses? Because I don't think I'm going to have anything substantive to say until we get to about uh, 14 or so. Well, this whole section, and especially these first verses, is a voice of warning. Mm. And that's afflicting the comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think there are times in our life where we all need to hear a warning like this, and there's times where we need to be comforted. And we don't want to misdiagnose the problem and misprescribe the solution. Is misprescribe a word? Can I be like making up my own words? It'll, it, it, I'll allow it. <laughs> I've <laughs> well, never anyway. heard it, but I'll well, allow it. You know, queer people love to make up our own words because there's not a word for the thing. We just make up our own word. So... That's, that's really what's going on here. We've got a voice of warning that's spoken to people who really need to change the status quo. Mm. So speaking of status quos, I did want to talk a little bit about some of this counsel or some of these words of the Lord that we get from uh, verse 19. Let me just go here real quick because I, I just think this is so beautiful. 19 through about 23, 24 or so. I like how the Lord lets us know that the weak things of the world shall come forth and break down the mighty and strong ones. He says that man should not counsel his fellow man, neither trust in the arm of flesh. And he does this in order 21. I like that faith might also increase in the world. And then he talks about giving things to people in their weakness. Now, we've talked about scriptures like this in the past. Like we've gone to, I think it was 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 27, where this is mentioned. This is also mentioned in other places in the, in the Doctrine and Covenants. This is mentioned in the Book of Mormon about the Lord using the weak things. And I just felt like this was something that would be worth focusing on because I think there's a few ways we can read the weak things of the world as it's written here in verse 19 or in scriptures like uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First off, I think the weak could have referred to folks without institutional power. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like the Lord choosing folks like this to preach the gospel makes a lot of sense for a few reasons. Um, one reason is that a gospel preached by those without institutional power tends to be a lot more inclusive. You know, it's more committed to reconciliation and humanization. If you've ever been into a black church, you will notice that people who have been forced to count on nothing or be lenient or be dependent on nothing but Jesus, you'll discover very quickly that those people can make you feel right at home. This is one of my favorite things about black church. And I feel like too often, our worship and ministering experiences can be colored by our relationships. They can be colored by social statuses. They can be colored by conventional standards of respectability according to our faith that make us feel like we either have to be a certain way in order to be branded as a good Mormon or that we have to ostracize people for not being a certain way. I've lost count 
of how many times, and maybe this has happened to you too, Derek, but every now and again, I will get a message or a text from somebody who's be like, who'd be like, James, I really appreciate these words you've written or said, or I really appreciate the podcast and what you guys mm-hmm. are doing there, but I can't, I can't share this with my friends. I can't share this with my family, or I can't post about this on social media because like, I'm friends with people in my ward. And I, part of me, Derek, wants to scream at these people and just say something along the lines of, if I was God... I couldn't call you to do my work. Ooh, like, I really yeah. could not call you to do my work. I can't call you to preach my gospel. Like, if, especially if you served a mission. If you served a mission and you're worried about offending people, do you, have you forgotten how difficult it is to preach the gospel without offending somebody? Like, it is very difficult to preach the gospel and not be offensive. I feel like that's a big part of being a prophet is like preaching a word that a lot of people don't really want to hear. I can appreciate what folks are telling me to an extent. They want to preserve their relationships. They don't want to rub people the wrong way. They want people to like them. But if you are worried about offending the sensibilities of folks with a gospel message, then I don't think you're trying to do this work. Right. You know, I saw this advice from one activist saying, what's up with people sharing something anti-racist and not making it public so that only their friends can see it? I think the risk is, the risk is like people are afraid to get real when anyone can search them, their current employer, their future employer can look up and then see what they're saying. But my theory is this is worth risking a job over Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because we with privilege can choose whether or not we lose our job, right? Mm-hmm. We should take these risks and uh, and lend some of our voice to those who who may not have the same opportunity to reach people that we do. Which gets back to my point about, you know, why the marginalized are the best people to do this work. We got a lot less to lose. We are ready to disrupt some status quos, the poor, the marginalized, the outcasts. Right. We are ready to provoke bigots and ask disruptive questions. The very act of preaching the gospel itself, it challenges and it redefines power. Like, you can't challenge and redefine power if you are trying to placate those who are misusing it. This is the curse of privilege because you are always trying to hold on to a little bit of it. You are always trying to maintain some of it by not offending the people that have it and are misusing it. This is why... God tends to call people on the margins. This is why he tends to work in the margins is because these are people who know how to be inclusive and these are people that don't have a ton to lose. Um, Occasionally, he'll call people who have a lot of privilege or have a lot of influence, people like uh, Amulek, you know, somebody who was no small reputation in his community, somebody who had a lot of money, but notice what he was willing to do. He left his home, he left his wealth to preach the gospel. Paul, an educated guy, you know, this is somebody Mm -hmm. who had means, this is somebody who was like, I mean, not popular in the regular sense, but this was somebody who was accustomed to speaking and being in circles with educated people and other philosophers and stuff like that. But when you look at his language as he preaches, when you look at the places he goes, when you look at the things he talks about, this is somebody who is willing to shed their privilege in order to do those things. Paul is the kind of guy I would call to preach the gospel because this is somebody who knows how to shed privilege and leverage privilege. Amulet 
Balak, same thing. I would call him because he had means and he used those means to preach the gospel effectively, but he was also willing to leave a lot of those things behind. But even still, this is why God works in the margins, because these are people who know what it feels like to be outcast. They know what an inclusive right. gospel feels like. This is all right up their alley, the gospel message, challenging power, redefining power. It's also inclusive because a gospel that works for and can be preached by the least of these it has a universality about it. Like even if those, even those without power can access it, then everybody can access it. Yeah. Like everybody eats, everybody washes feet, everybody's stories matter, and everybody is embraced in their different histories and their different cultures and identities. This is why I believe, this is one of the reasons and one of the things the Lord is talking about when he says, I choose the weak things. Because the weak things, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the weak things get it. The weak things are capable. The weak things are ready to hear it, and the weak things are ready to work. Yeah, and that reminds me about the historical context here. The very early church, this is only about a year and a half old, they didn't have a lot of people, they didn't have a lot of mm -hmm. money, they didn't mm -hmm. have a lot of education, mm -hmm. they didn't have a lot of social standing or political power. Mm -hmm. In fact, they were really treated with disgust by the rest of society. They didn't mm -hmm. have much. Now, mm -hmm. let's look at the church today. We've got a lot of people with education, mm -hmm. especially in the United States. Mm -hmm. We've got a lot of money. We've got more money than, like, we got a lot of money. <laughs> yep. We've got a lot of money, both as individuals and as the church. We've got a lot of social and political standing, especially in the West. We're basically flipped from where the first church was. Mm -hmm. And so that should give us some pause about where do we look for the marginalized now? Where do we look for the weak things now? Mm-hmm. And I want to pivot this into something back in verse 14, because it's, here's what verse 14 says. And the arm of the Lord shall be revealed, and the day cometh that they who will not hear the voice of the Lord, neither the voice of his servants, neither give heed to the words of the prophets and apostles, shall be cut off from among the people. Now, I've noticed that if you look at the whole section, the word servant is used six times in section one. And this can give us some evidence about how it's being used later in the section when we get to the whole, by the voice of my servants, it is the same thing. But here in verse 14, the servants are enumerated separately, listed along with the Lord and the prophets and apostles. Mm. Notice that. You've what does got, that mean? You've got the voice of the Lord, the voice of his servants, and then the words of the prophets and apostles. This suggests that the Lord's servants are a larger group that it's not identical with the prophets and apostles, but includes them. And I want to just name that when we look at the scriptural record, the term God's servants absolutely includes women. Mm. You know, verse 14 starts out with, and the arm of the Lord shall be revealed, which reminds me, of course, as you know where I'm going with this, <laughs> a line for the Magnificat. Here it is. I'm going to start a counter every time Derek references the Magnificat. This has got to be at least five right. or six. We've got to believe women. <laughs> so it says, he hath, Mary sings, he hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree in Luke 1. And this ties back to the arm of the Lord, which strengthens those who are weak, but then also conquers, I suppose, those who are strong. Mm. And even earlier in the Magnificat, we have, for he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. Now, here's where the servant language comes in. Literally, he has taken note of the affliction or humiliation or the bringing low, that's how I would translate it, of his servant. 
she names herself as the Lord's servant. Here's something interesting. Throughout the Magnificat, Mary echoes several places in the Hebrew Bible, such as Psalm 113 and Isaiah 41. And get this, watch this everyone. In doing so, she claims for herself religious expression that is often seen as the sole domain of men. This includes naming herself as a servant of the Lord. In this, she follows the boldness of Hannah's prayers and song in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. For me, the Magnificat is one of the clearest summaries of the gospel. Also, in the 19th century context, the term handmaiden or servant is used. So it's not just for biblical women. So the term handmaiden is used four times in DNC 132 for Emma Smith and once in DNC 90 for Vienna Jacques. I guess that's how you pronounce her name. I'm not sure how you pronounce because it's not spelt the same way. But anyway, as we see, servant doesn't mean a few men at the top. We are all called to be servants of the Lord. Mm. Great observation. like that a lot. Speaking of servants of the Lord, I want to come back to what's written in uh, verse 24 about uh, the Lord. Well, this is what it says. Behold, I am God and have spoken it. These commandments are of me and were given to my servants. There's that other mention of the word servant in their weakness after the manner of their language that they might come to understanding. I just thought this was really interesting because, well, let me just read this quote by Brigham Young, what he had to say about stuff like this. He says, uh, the revelations of God contain correct doctrine and principles so far as they go, but it is impossible for the poor, weak, low, groveling, sinful inhabitants of the earth to receive a revelation from the Almighty in all its perfections. He has to speak to us in a manner to meet the extent of our capacities. The revelations that we got, as they are in Doctrine and Covenants, seem to just represent our leaders, and in most cases, Joseph Smith's best effort to communicate the voice of the Lord to his children in his imperfect language, our imperfect language, and imperfect souls. And that has, well, at least one big implication I can think of uh, that I want to share, which has, which is kind of given away by the fact that before these books of Revelations were even published, Joseph Smith went through these and had to make corrections. Right. He had to yeah. make corrections to grammar, to certain wording. He had to clarify some of the text so he could clarify the intent of the revelations. These revelations, even as we have them right now, I mean, you just pointed one out. This woman got a misspelling in her name, potentially. These revelations that we have might be incomplete to an extent, which means that they are subject to being amended, changed in some way, or even expanded upon as the restoration continues and the Lord reveals his truth. Like, this is kind of a big deal in our faith. Like, uh, you know, we talk about this being a living church a bunch of times. And part of that experience means being willing to make changes, make amends, and expand our theology in way in new and life-giving ways. And I feel like we are officially given permission when it basically all but says here that the revelations as we are receiving them are not totally complete or perfect or communicated in the best way. They are just communicated in a way that allows us to understand them. Right, and I think that's the beauty of historical work because we've got so many of the original manuscripts when these revelations were dictated. Then we've got how they were printed in the Book of Commandments, and then we've got how they were printed in the Doctrine and Covenants. 
And even within Joseph's lifetime, he revised and said, you know what, I can phrase this a little bit better, or I can apply this to a new situation. Like, none of these were fixed in stone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They were all subject to improvement. They were never really a dictation from God once for all. And I think this is why we need to have some humility when we look at why people justify racism in the church or why people justify homophobia or transphobia in the church. They're trying to draw upon the 1830s and like they didn't even address this issue. (laughs) They they didn't even have the language for this. We talk about that that the Lord gives things to his servants in their after the manner of their language in their weakness like this was this issue was never litigated in the 1830s or 40s people say well well joseph only sealed men and women and the sealing power if you're using that as your precedent you are not having the humility that's born out of the historical context where Mm -hmm. i'm sure he i'm sure joseph today if if same gender marriage had already been the law of the land in 1830 he would have gotten the sealing power and like oh of course we can seal them together like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he didn't think about it he didn't think about one way or the other right and people just going with a lot of assumption a lot of arrogance to say well only cisgender people of opposite genders can be sealed i mean that's Mm -hmm. not in our sources it's not and here's a trick that no homophobe in the church has ever given me a good answer for it's asked them what year what year did same gender marriage be uh, become officially condemned in the church and they can't point to a year hmm. and if they do there's a flaw in their reasoning like if they point to the proclamation and say that's when it started like no because then you're saying there wasn't a prior and legitimate basis in our sources before the 90s for the condemnation of same gender marriage mm-hmm. if you look back in the kimball years he really bases it on the on the bible and not on any modern revelation. So you can't pin down a year. You try to go the, the year of the sealing power in 1836. That was that not a basis. And then if you try to say, well, it's always been wrong. It's always been condemned back to 1830. Then you've got a real problem because that's not based on any revelation in 1830. Mm-hmm. What you're saying is the church was started and just absorbed and continued the policy of everyone around them without mm-hmm. reflecting and re- kind of like with racism where they just absorbed and didn't didn't second guess or, or double check everything that they absorbed from what around them. So my view is we haven't. We haven't officially and even the proclamation doesn't talk doesn't say anything against same gender marriage. It does talk about same gender procreative powers, but it never says that it never issues, it addresses the issue of marriage. Anyway, that's a long way around of talking about God gives stuff to his servants according to their language, whatever mm-hmm. language they have, whatever they bring, whatever questions they bring to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we've really brought this question to the Lord around LGBT folks. Nah. And kind of like alluding back to uh, what we talked about in our last conversation on the Book of Mormon, I don't think this is something that we're going to be able to really have a conversation about or talk about it to any great length until we are willing to hear an answer that actually humanizes gay people. Right. It's written in Moroni's promise that we can only get an answer to prayers or that we are most likely to get an answer to prayers if we are willing to accept the consequences of the answer that we receive. And the church as a whole does not seem ready to accept the reality that gay people might actually be fully human and entitled to every blessing that people like me believe to be their birthright. And until the church really gets to that point, until membership gets to that point, we might not get there. 
So like, right. we have yeah. to, as a church, be more open to this idea that gay people might just be right about their situation. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know? just it, It's tough because people will say, well, the, I'm sure that they've a- asked the Lord and, and the Lord says, no homo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Why do you have to say it like that? The Lord says, no homo. Well, the Lord says, pause. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm sure they people will say, but I don't think that is a sincere ask. If they don't come to the Lord knowing that there's a possibility that they could be wrong about this, that's not actually a sincere ask. And mm-hmm. Moroni says only if you ask sincerely, mm-hmm. like being mm-hmm. willing to be wrong. And I think to a degree they have to know the consequences of an answer in the affirmative with regard to gay humanity. That is going to really shake some things up. Right. It's going yeah. to cause some problems for, yeah. for people that are addicted to the status quo. Did y'all see, did you happen to see the comment section when the church's uh, Facebook page came out with that very neutral statement about accepting the results of the election. People were pitching a fit in that comment section just because the church affirmed the results of the election. Did you right. see it? They, they, you can guarantee if they talk about LGBTs, they accuse us of not following the prophet. That's the same population Ooh. that Ooh. doesn't follow the prophet. Speak on it. <laughs> they Speak they pick and it. choose. I mean, they like to say that they're faithful and orthodox, but, but they're not. But as soon as they say, accept the results of the election, people are in there with pictures of tearing up their recommends. Right, well. Spectacular I mean, fashion. And that's an issue of privilege as well. Like, if that's the first thing that has ever bugged you about the church, <laughs> you've got a lot of privilege. Congratulations. Like, you never thought real. about how women folks of color folks with disabilities transgender individuals are treated in the church and what we've had to survive mm-hmm. if this is their breaking point they haven't had any real pain in their life i mean mm-hmm. it didn't even say vote for biden or for it real. just said we acknowledge uh, that yeah. biden is now president that's all if that's that what all. it takes you have no business you weak bro yeah. you are weak and not the kind of weakness that god can use by the way <laughs> way to bring it back way to bring it back so let's i want to talk a little bit about um real quickly about verse 30 where it says the true and living church and i want to just name that to be alive any organism needs to grow to respond to stimuli to adapt if something doesn't change it's not alive mm. and we need to be willing to change and i think that's the brilliance of having living prophets is that we're able to, in theory, be resilient and adapt. Was it Maya Angelou who said, when we know better, we do better? Yep, Maya Angelou. So that's all I wanted to say about this living church. We really need to live into this idea that church is living and have higher expectations of it. Like Mm -hmm. I think when people say, oh, we're never going to change, you are really insulting the Lord's church. Absolutely insulting what's possible telling like we've said on the show many times our god does impossible things and like trying to put limits on what god can and can't do is really the kind of attitude that is going to be you know the death of the church as it should be you know we haven't had any revelations like any new moments where we got to actually see the law of common consent in action not Mm -hmm. since 1978 right and you know i kind of look at that as an even though these moments are very rare like they've only happened six times in the whole church's history i'm like the fact that we haven't experienced something like that in over 40 years just has to make me ask you know is there something we're missing is there something we're not doing that we're not getting 
more of these kinds of revelations or that there's not an inbreaking of new doctrine in a new and life-giving way that can address our particular issues surrounding uh, women, surrounding people of color, surrounding right. members of the LGBTQ community. Like, can we not do that now? Yeah, and that reminds me, one of the most uninformed things I've ever heard is, well, our doctrine can't change. You know what? Give me any doctrine, major or minor, in this church. I will tell you the year that it changed. <laughs> like, everything has changed. Some of it has been minor tweaks, but it's always been more light and knowledge. Like, even our fundamental ideas about God have changed over over the since 1830. Mm, great God, marriage, atonement, mm-hmm. the scriptures, like, the afterlife, all these doctrines have been modified, have been expanded, mm-hmm. and usually in good directions. Yeah, definitely. that our that our circle of inclusion is ever expanding over the past hundred and eighty or so years, and it's going to continue. Like, what will the church look like in two hundred years from now? That's where we need to be thinking. Something real quick in DNC one verses thirty one and thirty two. If you're already in a tough spot, and in this verse gives you a little bit more guilt and fear. Remember that the point of this is to afflict the comfortable. And if you're already afflicted, this verse doesn't apply to your situation. But it's the one about that says the Lord cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. I think it should be taken with the next verse that says, nevertheless, which gives you some, some contrast, nevertheless, he that repents and does the commandments of the Lord shall be forgiven. And taking them together, we realize that that's the, the most responsible of, of doing it is to take these yeah. two together. And as a result, we see that perfection isn't a requirement. We've got this cultural thing about perfection. Perfection Definitely. is not a requirement. The requirement is authentic repentance. That's all that's necessary in order to maintain that contrast with the verse about looking upon sin with the least degree of allowance. And then we get this commandment in verse 37 to search these commandments for they are true and faithful and the prophecies and promises which are in them shall be fulfilled. This is kind of putting a button on that warning that we received earlier in the chapter by uh, the Lord actually promising us that the things he said would come to pass will actually come to pass, which is something that we need to consider. But also this little thing that says search these commandments. We are actually commanded to search the commandments. This is something you can use to bolster your case for your project to enumerate the commandments. And that brings us to a really, really challenging irony in our church. It's because here's the thing. For some people, the church really works. Mm -hmm. It just flows really well. Perhaps they're a straight white man that's educated and has means and has, you know, stability in the family and their dream life. For those people, the church really works. Mm Mm-hmm. It just flows. But here's the irony, is for the people for whom the church really works, they don't have to search the scriptures the way I do. Mm-hmm. They don't have to search the scriptures the way you do. Like, it works for them, so they don't, have to, they don't have to put any effort into navigating or wrestling with the tradition. Yeah. We're the ones that I, we have to search the commandments to find the golden nuggets that are anti-racist, yeah. that are anti-homophobic or anti-trans women, uh, anti-transphobic, or the the nuggets of scripture that are pro-women, and seeing the trajectory, we have to do all this work. Yep. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about is actually in verse thirty-eight because I hear this verse quoted a lot and weaponized a lot against, especially uh, members of the LGBTQ community. This verse, I'm just going to read the whole thing. What I, the Lord, have spoken. 
I have spoken, and I excuse not myself, and though the heavens and the earth pass away, my word shall not pass away, but shall all be fulfilled. Whether by mine own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. A lot of people with a more, uh, I guess, fundamentalist view of the scriptures and the church like to use this scripture to demand exact obedience, like to uh, demand compliance, almost blind obedience to the words of the prophets and our leaders. And Elder Ballard's, uh, I don't know if you remember Elder Ballard's talk from like five or six years ago, the stay in the boat one, but he said something along the lines of how anytime the brethren speak, you know, the first presidency in the quorum of the 12, anytime they speak in a united voice, it's the voice of the Lord for that time. And therefore people use that to say, fall in line if the brethren say it. So, you know, again, I got to just say scriptures like this get weaponized against LGBTQ folks and others to justify their marginalization. But there is a pretty large caveat next to that scripture that reopens the conversation that we started last week on obedience to prophets. We should follow the prophet, but, you know, we should only follow him when he is acting and speaking as the prophet. I'm actually going to go to another section of the DNC. This is DNC 68. And I think I'm going to be focusing on verse four. Also, I need to mention that this particular revelation was also given on November 1st, 1831, like this section that we just read, DNC section one. So in the same section, on the same day that the saints have been told that whether it's the voice of me or whether it's the voice of my servants, it's the same. We also get the Lord saying whatsoever they shall speak. When moved upon by the Holy Ghost shall be scripture, shall be the will of the Lord, shall be the mind of the Lord, shall be the will of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, and the power of God unto salvation. The caveat here, or the question that needs to be asked here, is how do we know when people are moved upon by the Holy Ghost? How do we know when our leaders are moved upon by the Holy Ghost? And we literally just discussed this at the end of the Book of Mormon with Moroni's promise. We know by the power of the Holy Ghost. We only know by the power of the Holy Ghost. That is the key. When we ourselves are moved upon by the Holy Ghost, then we can know that the brethren are speaking scripture. Then we can know if the brethren are speaking in line. And I know that probably begs another question. Isn't that going to lead to some kind of chaos and disorganization if we just kind of leave everyone to get their own witness of the prophet's words? First off, this is literally what the brethren want us to do. This is literally what's in the scriptures. Moroni commanded us to do this, and even prophets as early as Joseph and Brigham Young right. want us to do this. Joseph Smith said, I teach correct principles, they govern themselves. Brigham Young said, how can you know whether we lead you correctly or not? Can you know by any other power than that of the Holy Ghost? I have uniformly exhorted the people to obtain this living witness for themselves. Then no man can lead them astray. That's what Brigham Young said. The brethren don't want blind obedience. They don't want us to submit that way because we believe everything the brethren say is gospel. If we do that, then we would undermine our quest for godhood. Blind obedience undermines the very idea of freedom of speech, freedom of thought. It undermines agency. Like, yeah, we got to sustain and we got to support the brethren in as much as their conduct entitles them to that. But we also got to use our agency to wrestle, to ponder, to pray, to get our own revelation of what mm -hmm. we receive. Because that's how Godhood happens. That's how God has structured it. That is how the scriptures want things to happen. I believe everyone who is, I mean, personally, I'm not, I'm just going to speak for myself. I believe that everyone who is genuinely seeking the voice of Christ we worship, they're ultimately going to be in harmony with each other. But also, 
we're all just kind of doing what we want anyway. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like we're all we're all picking and choosing and we're all seeking our own revelations and we are all limited. We are all limited as to what revelation we are able to receive because of our various stories, our various histories, our cultures, our upbringings, our biases. Like we are not brought up in social, cultural, and political vacuum. So this mm-hmm. is going to affect of necessity, you know, what revelations we are able to get. So just to kind of like put a button on that idea, um, this idea that is presented in DNC 138 of receiving the words of the prophets as if they were coming from God themselves, which is also echoed in 21.5 and 68.4, even if you stretch far enough, that caveat about personal revelation is very strong. We cannot accept words of the prophets blindly without our own personal revelation. That is a requirement in this commandment that we are given to accept these words. Exactly. And you bring up an interesting point about the duty. And if you if you look at our sources, like you said, Joseph and Brigham, they're all about this. They're like, don't take all my war. Don't yes. take my, they literally say that. Joseph, don't take my, Brigham, Moroni, all of them. They say, you got to confirm this for yourself. And this is another, another bold example of what I said earlier, is that if the church is working for you, you don't have to work. You mm-hmm. don't have to put in the effort. Like, you don't got to ask nobody. Yeah, a lot of them just want to default to this cultural assumption that whatever they've heard is that it's fine, whatever. Mm-hmm. But we don't have the privilege of just no. taking everything and not processing it, not no. wrestling with it. You don't and get that luxury. I, you know how many straight folks in the church say, Derek, I wish I knew the scriptures as well as you? <laughs> There's a reason why. Like, yeah. you probably haven't had to do what I've had to do just mm-hmm. to join the church or stay in the church. Your knowledge. Which leads to that. A lot of people think this thing about, well, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That's somehow unfair. That's somehow un- artificially changing it afterward. But no, like you said, if you're first, if the church works for you and you don't have to put in any extra effort, you're going to end up last in mm-hmm. terms of development. Mm-hmm. And if everything you get is spoon-fed for you and you don't have to work at it, you're not going to be as far as along of as far along the way as someone else in terms of becoming a celestial adult who has responsibility and initiative. Yep. Yep. And I want to talk a little bit about verse 38 and by a little bit I mean a lot. <laughs> and uh, so buckle in your seat belts because we're going to have have a journey. I'm going to talk about three important points that I wanted to bring to bear on verse 38. Okay. So the first point is the question of who are the servants? Because it says whether by my own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. We need to figure out who those servants are. Like we said earlier in here, the servants aren't coterminous with the prophets and apostles. It's probably bigger. We've got women servants. We've got all of God's people being servants. And so, when we look at the context of the entire section, the whole section has a broad usage of the term servants, and that should shed light on how it's used here. So, yes, all of God's people are God's servants, and when all of us speak the Lord's word, it's the Lord's, right? So, second, so second, the original manuscript of this revelation has no punction anywhere here, so that doesn't help us. But three printed versions of this revelation published during Joseph's lifetime have a comma after the phrase, by mine own voice, comma. 
And these three published editions are the 1833 Evening and Morning Star, the periodical, the 1833 Book of Commandments, and the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants. Now this comma leads to the reading, whether by mine own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. So you hear what I'm saying with that? It's not like whether by mine own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. There's a sort of flow. Do you know what I'm saying? It flows a little differently. Yeah. It's like whether it's by my own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. And in the end, we can't put too much weight on the presence or absence of a comma, but it does help us like wrestle with the text and figure out, well, what's it trying to say? So the third, we have to talk about that it. Got to talk about that it. One of the most important things to bring out here is the interpretation of the pronoun it in this last clause. It is the same. Because there's a lot of assumptions. Like every time you hear this quoted, people bring to bear this assumption that I want to unpack. Now we're going to have to back up and talk about some linguistics here. First, we need to talk about something called a syntactic expletive. It's a word that appears in the structure of a sentence, but has no real semantic import. Like it doesn't add to the meaning, like add new meaning. In English, the most important syntactic expletives are the word there and the word it. We hear this in phrases like, there are four prime numbers less than 10. There are, right? And that just means four prime numbers less than 10 exist. The word there doesn't add any extra meaning. It's not demonstrative at all. It's not pointing somewhere and saying there. And then another example of this expletive is the word it in the word or in the phrase, it seems that you are wise or it is obvious that we are Americans or it's raining or it, what is the it that is the subject of these sentences? There is no subject of these sentences. It's what we call a dummy pronoun, not a referential pronoun that's referring back to some antecedent. Now let's talk about the verse here. So it is the same. What is the it? And I think that what's going on is so many people hear just the last part of the statement, whether by my own voice, the voice of my servants, it is the same, and think that the it is a dummy pronoun. The evidence suggests here that it's not a dummy pronoun, but a real pronoun with a specific antecedent. And the context suggests to me that the antecedent is my word in the previous mm-hmm. line. Okay. My word. It says, okay. my word shall not pass away, but shall all be fulfilled, whether by mine own voice comma, or by the voice of my servants, it, meaning my word, it is the same. Mm. So it's my word. It presupposes that it's God's word to begin with. So what does this mean? What's the payoff here? What this means is not that anything by said by the servants is the same as the Lord's voice, but rather that God's word said directly by God, like a voice from heaven, has the same effect as God's word through God's servants. It presupposes that you already know it's God's word. This verse doesn't help us identify God's word, but says that if something is already known to be God's word, then it has the same authority, whether directly or through God's servants. Mm. Hopefully that makes sense. And I'm just unpacking what a lot of people probably intuitively think about this verse if they read it in the whole context. 
And here's a good example if what I said didn't make sense. It's like if I run a 19th century business and I sometimes give instructions in person and sometimes by telegraph. I could say that any instruction you get from me by telegraph is the same as if I delivered it in person. Or in other words, whether by telegraph or in person, it's the same. But that does not imply that everything you get by telegraph is from me. Right. And this definitely ties into what you brought from DNC section 68, which was also a response to one of McClellan's questions. Mm -hmm. And it says, like you said, whatever they shall speak when moved upon by the Holy Ghost. You have that very limiting clause there, the temporal yep. clause, when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, mm -hmm. shall be scripture, shall be the will of the Lord, etc. And so we and we need to see that restrictive clause there. And imply and it implies that not all times are church leaders moved upon by the Holy Ghost. And mm. we need to have the Holy Ghost to confirm those. Yep. Very good. I think that's all I want to talk about for uh, for the DNC section one. Is there anything else you want? Yes, I had one brief thing to point out from verses 34 and 35. Let's go back there. And it says, And again, verily I say unto you, O inhabitants, O inhabitants of the earth, I the Lord am willing to make these things known unto all flesh. For I am no respecter of persons, and will that all men shall know that the day speedily, speedily cometh, the hour is not yet, but nigh at hand, when peace shall be taken from the earth, and the de well, it doesn't matter what he's saying. Well, I guess it does matter. <laughs> um, and the devil shall have power over his own dominion. Mm -hmm. But my point is, God is no respecter of persons. I really think that trumps everything else we hear in the scriptures around gender or race or orientation, uh, even though they don't talk about orientation in the scripture. When we boil it down to all are alike unto God, that is the, our doctrine. People say, well, this conflicts with our core doctrine. No, our core doctrine is the equality of all people. And if you have something in your head that denies the equality of my people, you've got the core doctrine wrong, no matter mm -hmm. what you think about marriage or mm -hmm. sealing. And this kind of connects with the very first verse. We've got inclusive language. Hearken ye people from afar, ye that are upon the islands of the sea, the implication is that God is no respecter of, a pers of persons there. God wants everyone to have God's word. And so this idea that God is no respecter of a persons should have in every generation revolutionary effects in the church. It's not a one time we're done with that. We've, we're gonna revisit. Like I'm curious what in the next 20 or 30 years, what new population of people that even I'm not aware of are gonna rise up and say, look, we're not being treated well. And I'm gonna be, I'm already committed to being on board with them, right? I, I know I'm already, I don't know who they are and what their cause is, but I'm already on board with the equality of that, pe that group of people. I think the LGBT thing is a, for, for me, it's a closed conversation. Like we've, I've arrived, there's more work to be done, but I don't think there's more understanding that these, we've already got the light and understanding, it's here. Mm. You covered this a little bit when we talked about verse 19 and 20, about the weak things of the world shall come forth. And verse 20, I just want to emphasize again, says that every man might speak in the name of God the Lord. So that's the whole point of choosing the weak things of the world, is to, to broaden it out into every person. Mm. And this warning concerning the voice of the servants is balanced by a caution not to trust in the arm of the flesh, 
the outpouring of the Spirit here on the earth would lead and should lead to every person speaking in the name of the Lord. And I want to talk about this feature-focused business because so much of, uh, I mean, future-focused business. So much of what's going on in section one is about where things are going, where the missionary work is going, where the church is going, and where this true and living church is going. It's not about, well, we've accomplished this and we can sit back. It's defined, the church is defined more by its future than by its past, and we need to live into its future. That's, you know, that's why I joined the church. I joined the church not because of where it's been, but where it's going. And I'm like, I want to go, I want to go there with them. I get there's racism, sexism, homophobia, right? I knew that when I joined. But I joined despite our history, but because of our future. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing. And surprisingly, miraculously, I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Good job. All right. Before we move into some housekeeping items, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Derek, where can people find us? You can find us on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and also at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Make sure you share us with all of your friends. Yes, everybody. Feel the earth. The the Black LDS Legacy Conference finally dropped their save the date for the fourth annual Black LDS Legacy Conference. We will be doing episodes every week after this episode, at least till we figure out how we're going to operate general conference for the new year. Just want to drop a special thank you to our friends David Doyle for doing our transcripts, Tamara Kemsley for doing the audio editing of the podcast, and also Eden Wynn for doing our social media all y'all are rock stars. Really appreciate y'all. If you guys are looking to support the show, by all means, go to our Glow page. You can access it by going to glow.fm slash beyond the block. That is glow, G-L-O-W dot F-M slash beyond the block. Also look forward to the new year. Definitely going to be dropping some new things. I plan on using this next week off to really you know, both strategize and to focus on some of these new projects we got in the works. Can't wait for y'all to see them. Um, it's going to be a good time. So Ooh, I just, I just had the most brilliant fundraising idea ever. I'm not taking my shirt off, Derek. No, 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 no. That's okay. my second most brilliant idea. <laughs> my most brilliant idea is that every time someone contributes $25 or more, I tell a new joke on the air, and they get to watch your reaction. No. Yes. Come on. Come not. on. You, we'd get hundreds right not there. Not even for the podcast. <laughs> not even for the podcast. Oh, well. Subject me to this kind of humiliation <laughs> and despair for $25. Goodness. Derek, well, want, Derek wants to torture me, bro. Yeah. What's well, that's fun. I mean, that's why, I mean, we're friends, so <laughs> you can't Dude. get rid of me. I cannot. I will never get rid of Derek. Right. I mean, your podcast would just be very different. My podcast, our podcast, bro. (laughs) Also, just I have no qualms about just shutting all this thing down if I don't got to hear another joke. So don't test me, y'all. Do not test me. Anyway, 
till we meet again, folks. Later, everyone.